For those of you who do not know me, my name is Josh Brown. I'm our director of Young Family Ministries here. If you're looking for something fun to do in the summer, we've got a thing called Vacation Bible School that we would love your help with. So uh, if you would have any interest, please let me know. But very excited for this opportunity. Before we get into the text, let's pray and we will begin. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see the significance of what we are doing tonight. The significance to hear the words of God. I pray that you would help us to <coughs> listen to you. As we will see in this text, we are called to listen to you above all. Please, Lord, remove distraction from our minds. So many things that compete for our thoughts and our affections and our desires help us tonight to go away with one singular desire one singular thought, one singular affection, and that being you. Pray that you would help us in this. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, I'm sure um, some of you throughout your life have seen a, a movie trailer. How many of you have ever seen a movie trailer or a preview? It's like a movie preview. Have you ever seen that before? They're very strategic. They have a goal in mind. A movie trailer is like 45 seconds to a minute to just give you a little bit of a taste of the full film. It's to, meant to whet your appetite a little bit, maybe give you a little bit of a glimpse to pique your interest and it's designed to give you that glimpse so that you will look forward to the finished product with great anticipation. Right? We know that's the goal, yet we fall for it all the time. We see 45 seconds, we're captivated, and we're ready to see the full film. Well, tonight, I hope that this passage functions as a little bit of a preview, a little bit of a movie trailer, if you will for the full film that is coming one day when Jesus returns. It is meant to be a preview. The title of the lesson tonight is called this, The Transfiguration, A Brief Glimpse at the Glorious Christ. And it is meant to be a brief glimpse so that it will stoke the flames of your affection for him. It is meant to make you look forward to the day when you don't just have to see a glimpse, but when he will be on full display for all time. It is meant to make you look forward to that day. And this passage is Matthew 17. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 17.
My intention this evening is to let the scriptures give you this brief glimpse of our glorious Christ. It is my hope and prayer that after our time tonight that you would see Christ as superior and more glorious than fill in the blank. Anything in that blank, Jesus Christ is more superior and more glorious than that. I hope that you will walk away tonight feeling small, feeling unworthy to be loved by such a God. Unworthy to be loved by the God, but I hope to not leave you without hope. Now some of you may be thinking, well, if we're just, if all we're doing tonight is taking a brief glimpse at the glorious Christ, well, I don't really know how that helps me in my everyday Christian walk. I don't really know how that uh, helps me live for Christ on the day-to-day basis. Where's the application in that? Well, let me remind you of something. You will never overcome any sin in your life without a superior affection. You will never be able to defeat any sin that is bothering you, that you are fighting with, if you don't see the glory of Christ. If you don't see Jesus as glorious, you will not deny yourself for him. If you don't see Jesus as glorious, you will not work to please God in your marriage. You want a better marriage? Be in awe of Christ. You want to be a better parent? Be in awe of Christ. You want to be a better friend, neighbor, worker? Be in awe of Christ. To the extent that you are not in love with Christ or in awe of him is the extent to which you will choose to please yourself over him. So, seeing the glorious Christ has everything to do with our day-to-day lives. For if you do not see him as glorious, you will not live for him. So it is my hope and prayer that the flame of your love would be stoked so that the love for sin in this world would be quenched. So let's take a look together at Matthew 17. I have four points this evening. The first of which is found in verses 1 through 3. And I've titled it, The Glory of Christ Revealed. Now before we read this text, I do want to mention that this text, Matthew 17, there's, it's one of three texts that uh, share the account of the transfiguration. So we're going to be kind of flipping back and forth a little bit, and I will be referencing the other accounts because each account brings with it some different information. Not that it is different in the sense that it's a different event, but that it fills in the blanks for each other. So it's kind of hard to pick one of the three because they're all three great, so I'm going to work my best at trying to fill in the gaps with the other texts. Let's read verses 1 through 3, and the point is the glory of Christ revealed. Says this, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking 
with him. In verse 1, we see very clearly the company that is involved here or the, the characters involved in this story are revealed. We see Jesus, of course, and he takes his three closest companions with him up on this mountain. The location is clear. It's up on a high mountain somewhere. We're not exactly sure. But it's up on a high mountain. He brings his three with him. Now, Luke's account says there was a motive behind this. Uh, Luke 9.1 says they went up on the mountain to pray. They, this is a typical behavior often where you will read of Jesus uh, reclusing for a moment to pray. And this is what we see. Very same thing here. They're up on the mountain. In verse 2 it says, And he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured is the Greek word that is meant to convey a transformation to change from one form to another. That's what transfigured means. Simply that. He was changed in a moment. He was transformed in some way. In what way? Well, the text reveals, it says, in two primary ways was he transfigured. One, his face shone like the sun. Maybe this is a silly question, but have any of you tried to take a peek at the sun directly lately? If you have, you probably enjoy pain because it hurts. To try to look straight into the sun is a fool's endeavor because you cannot, your eyes cannot even behold the glory of one star. And this, these disciples are trying to figure out how to best describe this. It says Jesus' face shone like the sun meaning the glory so bright you could not even look fully at it. It was likened to the sun. And the second way he was transfigured was his garments became as white as light. Interestingly, Mark's account of the transfiguration says, it was a white so white that no launderer on earth could produce it. Whatever the purest form of the color white was, that's what, it, what is happening here. Purity at its finest, no blemish, no spot. Luke's account says that these things, he was transfigured while he was praying. While Jesus was praying, these things happened. And then verse 3, it reveals uh, what should be very interesting to us, of course, if it's not already. Behold, Moses... And Elijah appeared to them talking with him. This should strike you in some way. This isn't normal. None of this is normal. None of this is, uh, you know, if, if maybe one of you came in here with a face shining like the sun, I would think this is concerning. This is not normal. But then to accompany it with robe as pure as you can imagine, and all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. This is not normal at all. Now, before we move on to our next point, it would, we would do well to kind of fill in some of the blanks here that I think Luke's account helps us do. So keep your finger in Matthew 17, and I want you to turn with me to Luke 9. I want to fill in some of the blanks that we don't get from Matthew 17 so that we can get the better context of what's going on. 
We will return to Matthew 17 in a moment. But this situation is not like any other situation that these disciples have ever been in. This is completely abnormal. Something is going on here that God wants to reveal. Luke 9, verse 30 through 32, says this. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So let's start to fill in the details of this story. Apparently, they had gone up on this mountain with Jesus to pray, and very similar to the Garden of Gethsemane, and maybe you've experienced this once or twice in your life, when you close your eyes to pray, sometimes you fall asleep. And this is apparently what has happened. The disciples have fallen asleep. Maybe they were, very, for very good reason, fatigued, but in any sense, they were asleep. And what they would awake to would radically change them forever. Luke's account also says that Moses and Elijah appeared in some glorious sense, in some glorious state. We're not exactly told how, but they are there. And then this this account, Matthew 17 doesn't include this, but Luke's account includes what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus, the Messiah, about, which I find really fascinating. Did you catch it? They were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's a weird way to to phrase it. They were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus was speaking to Moses and Elijah about his death. I don't know what that conversation was like. I don't know if that's just Jesus talking to them, but apparently some sort of conversation is happening. Maybe they are trying to encourage him. Maybe they've known the plan. In some way, they are conversing about what he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem, which we know is his death. Now, there's a very interesting uh, comparison here, something that... um, that I find interesting is the Greek word for departure. Let me see if you guys can uh, uh, maybe guess where this comes from. Is exodon. Any word that sounds familiar to that? Exodus. Isn't it really fascinating that Moses, the leader of the exodus out of Egypt, is talking to Jesus about his exodus? I find that really fascinating. In fact, a far more significant exodus because Jesus' exodus on the cross would usher in and make available for all people to experience an exodus from their sins, from slavery to sin. I find that interesting. So we see they're talking, they're conversing, and it says at some point or other, The disciples wake up and they see and they're amazed. Now flip back to Matthew 17, if you're not there already. 
This is just really interesting. The characters who are here and some of the things that are happening. But we see in our next point that not everything was revealed. Not everything was as it seemed. The second point is this. The significance of Christ concealed. Now, maybe you can picture yourself in their shoes for a moment, but imagine waking up. Maybe you've been woke up before in a, you know, very terrible fashion. Maybe you're just scared. Maybe somebody's poured water on you and you're frightened for a moment, but then you realize everything's okay. If you wake, if you woke up to this, I don't even know what I would do. You would probably think you were dreaming because... Standing before you is one whose face is shining like the sun in robes whiter than you can imagine. Oh, and there's Moses and Elijah too. That would be something to wake up out of, wouldn't it? But these disciples awake and they see. Now, how they know it was Elijah and Moses, I'm not sure. Maybe they had a name tag. (laughs) I have no idea. But they knew and God wanted them to know and there's a reason. So let's read verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now Mark's account says Peter was terrified. He really didn't know what to say. They are are terrified beholding this. Just kind of, Mark kind of displays Peter as speaking out of Pure fright. Luke, uh, Luke's account says Moses and Elijah had begun to leave, or they began leaving. And Peter says this. And Peter, of course, if you know Peter, he does what he does best. He talks. He doesn't know any other way to do it. He just wants to speak. So he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here. One for each of you. Now, maybe you can... Relate to that. I don't, I don't really see how I would have responded much different. This is amazing. Now, you got to understand this from especially the Jewish perspective. Moses, hero of the Jews, in a sense, one that they looked up to greatly. He delivered the law of God, acted as a mediator, led their people out of Egypt... This Moses is here. This is religious celebrity status. It really is. Wait, the the Moses is here. I want this to be for... And Elijah too? The guy who didn't die? The guy who ascended into heaven? I'm seeing him? The guy who stood against the prophets of Baal and laughed in the face of their prophets? And called down fire to consume his offering. This is incredible. So Peter does what I probably would have done too. Jesus, I'm happy. John, James and I, we don't even need to sleep in in a tent. But would you guys just hang around for a while? Maybe he's simply showing hospitality and honor. Maybe he's thinking deeper about this. Because if you know... Prophecies, there is a specific prophecy having to do with Elijah. 
Malachi, of course, prophesied about the return of Elijah. Maybe, maybe Peter's picking up on that and is saying, oh, Elijah's here. The kingdom is close. Don't leave, Elijah. We want you here. Because Malachi says you're coming and you're here now, so don't leave. Maybe he was thinking about that. Or maybe he wasn't thinking deeply at all and he's just talking. <laughs> maybe he just wanted to enjoy the moment further with his heroes all together. I mean, think of that. He's probably thinking, Jesus is here. And now, and now Moses and Elijah here, these are, these are the three best guys. I want to spend some time with them. But Peter was thinking simply. And the significance of Christ was concealed to him. But it wouldn't stay concealed for long, as we see. In fact, it only takes one verse <laughs> for us to see this. And this is our third point. The superiority of Christ confirmed. Verses 5 through 8, let's read this. It says, while he, meaning Peter, was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up. And do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. I love in verse 5 that it says God in, in heaven interrupted Peter. I think that's hilarious. Uh, it says while he was still speaking, God says, enough, Peter. You've said enough. In Luke's account, it actually says, it actually makes a, like a little comment, commentator note that says, Peter didn't know really what he was saying. He didn't know the weight of what he was asking them to do. He didn't get it. He was thinking simply. It was veiled to him the significance of Christ. But it says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. It means, that word overshadowed means to envelop or engulf. Basically what is happening is this situation has gone from abnormal to crazy to even crazier. You are standing in the presence of one whose face is shining like the sun. You can't even look at him with robes, pure white. Moses and Elijah are here. And let's just add a cloud enveloping us. And then a voice comes. And what does the voice say? It is God, of course. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, before we cover these verses further, because it's important and we need to, I want to make a quick pit stop here that I don't believe the cloud coming is just a random detail. If you're a student of your Old Testament, you know that in the Old Testament, a cloud often represented the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord. Exodus 13.21 says, God led the nation of Israel in a pillar of cloud by day. Leviticus 16.2 says, God said, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Numbers 16.42 says, it came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. 
Deuteronomy 4.11, and this is God speaking, this is God speaking at Sinai, or speaking of the time at Sinai, I should say. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. 1 Kings 8, 10 through 12 says, It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said he would dwell in the thick cloud. Peter, James, and John, if they knew their scriptures, and maybe they, they did very well, should have connected the dots. This cloud meant something. They were in the presence of God. And what they were seeing on display was a brief glimpse into the glory of God. This is incredible. The words that came out of the cloud only confirmed what they probably suspected. You know, they should have just got that from just the cloud being present. And them knowing their scripture saying cloud... Cloud, cloud, God's here, right? But then the voice says something that we're, we're pretty familiar with. In fact, we hear this somewhere else. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Where else do we hear that? At Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3.17 says, And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Verbatim. Same thing. God, the Father, is verifying and putting his stamp of approval. This is my Son. And by the way, I am fully pleased with my Son. So what that really means is, if you're for him... I'm pleased with you. If you're against him, I'm not pleased with you. But notice, there's something added here. God the Father adds something here on the Transfiguration Mountain that he did not say at the baptism. Three words. Listen to him. I don't think that is insignificant especially considering the company there with him on the mountain. So the question might be asked, wait a minute, why would, why would God the Father even have to say that? Listen to him. Peter, James, and John could have been like, we are, we're up on the mountain. <laughs> he asked us to come, we're listening. We've been following him, we've been listening. Why would God the Father say this? Well, consider the company surrounding Jesus on that mountain, Moses, chosen by God to lead Israel out of Egypt. He was the great mediator between God and men, the one through whom God delivered the old covenant, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law that said this, if you obey, you will live. But the Mosaic law also says, If you don't obey, you will die. Conditional covenant. This is the man that delivered that, was God's vessel that delivered it. And he's the one that delivered the law that they have been under ever since. 
under this Mosaic law. Elijah, perhaps the greatest of all the prophets, constantly acting as a mediator between God and men, delivering messages on God's behalf. He stood against great enemies for the sake of truth, for the sake of God. He stood, as we already mentioned, against the prophets of Baal. He did many mighty things for God. Perhaps the greatest of all the prophets, he did not die. He ascended into the heavens in a unique way. The greatest of the prophets of whom spoke great prophecies and promises that these Jews were hoping in. Peter, James, and John, along with all of the Jews, had been listening to Moses and had been listening to Elijah for a long time. You might say, well, what do you mean? Moses represents the law. Elijah, as the greatest of the prophets, represents the prophets. They had been listening to them for a long time. We will follow the law of Moses. We will do as we are told. We hope in the prophecies. We are listening to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah. We are hoping in the coming Messiah. They've been listening to them for all of their lives. And God is saying, someone greater is here. He is saying, you don't need to listen to Moses anymore. You don't need to listen to Elijah anymore because I've given you my son. The time has come for them to not elevate Moses, to not elevate Elijah in any unholy way, but to give way and listen to Jesus. He alone demands attention and is superior. Peter, in trying to keep the three of them around and one, each of them having their own tabernacle, without him knowing, is equating them to each other. Without him knowing, he's saying, you deserve your own place. You deserve your own place. You deserve your own place. And God says, no. Only one is superior. Now, before you might hear what I'm not saying, he's not only greater than them, but he is the one whom they have been pointing to the whole time. Moses and Elijah gladly give way because they've been pointing to the one who's here. It doesn't say that Elijah or Moses had the glowing face with the white robe. No. Jesus is on no one's level. He is infinitely superior. He's the better mediator. He's the better lawgiver. No one is greater than him. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. How does Moses, how have Moses and Elijah been speaking about Christ? That doesn't make sense. The Old Testament doesn't say Jesus Christ. Let me say this. If anybody tells you that the Old Testament doesn't speak about Jesus Christ, they haven't read their full Bible. The Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ. It all is pointing to Jesus. You don't have to believe me. I have proof. Luke 
24, 25 through 27 says this. This is Jesus speaking to men on the Emmaus road after his resurrection. He says this. And then he said to him, you foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. So don't argue with me. If you don't think the Old Testament is about Christ, Jesus says, no, I will show you where Moses has been pointing to me. I will show you where all of the prophets have been looking to me. And that is what is happening here. Romans 3.21 says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Notice who's on the Mount of Transfiguration with them. The one who would represent the law and the one who would represent the prophets. So did Jesus come to do away with Moses and Elijah? No. He came to fulfill them. He came to fulfill everything that has been said about him. Luke 24, 44 says this. This is Jesus still on the Emmaus Road. It says, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Matthew 5, 17, do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So what is happening here on this Mount of Transfiguration would probably be pretty overwhelming if they're picking up on it. Jesus is showing, we are being shown here that the law had a purpose. The prophets had a purpose. And they were to point to Christ. And Christ is here, so they're giving way. Both were meant to point to and be fulfilled by Jesus. You might say, well, how did, how did Jesus fulfill the law? How did he fulfill Moses? Well, he fulfilled the law by perfectly living under the law. And fulfilling it in every respect. Not only did he fulfill the law himself, but his death allows people to be law keepers instead of law breakers. His death provides the atoning sacrifice for all law breakers to be forgiven. He has lived under the law and kept it fully. He's fulfilled the law the very law that was meant to point Israel to Christ, the very law that was meant to tell them, you can't fulfill this. You need a Savior. He's come. How does Jesus fulfill the prophets? Well, we don't really have time to go through all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfills. But he not only fulfills the specific ones, but he fulfills the promise of a new covenant of a better covenant. What Ezekiel says, he fulfills the promise of a new heart, a new spirit. His Holy Spirit would dwell within us, the promise of salvation. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For as many as are the promises of God in him, Christ, are yes. 
They're fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. The beautiful confirmation of Christ's superiority cannot be understated. When God, the Father, says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. He's singling out his Son and saying, Don't have anyone equal in your mind to Jesus because this, he is the one who Moses has been pointing to, who Elijah has been pointing to all along. Now verse 6 happens, all of that in verse 5. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, I think they got it. I think they got the point. Because how did they respond? Exactly how I would have if I just heard a voice emerge from the cloud with the ramifications of what was just said. They fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Anybody who says they wouldn't have responded that way is not thinking clearly. They have just realized fully they are standing in the presence of the Most High, one who is infinitely greater than Moses, one who is infinitely greater than Elijah, the one who came to fulfill them both, is right in front of them. So they fall on their face utterly and completely terrified. And yet, perhaps my, one of my favorite verses of this whole account is found in verse 7, because you get it, right? Hopefully you see the weight of the glory before them. There's a reason they can't even look up. There's a reason they're on the ground, because what, however high they viewed Moses and Elijah, they just realized they're nothing compared to God who stands in front of us. You see the weight of that, right? They're in front. They're, they're, they're trying to see. They can't even look up. And Jesus walks over to them. And we read what happens in verse 7. And I love this. If you're a believer, you love this. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. Put yourself in the mind of Peter for a moment, who again spoke without thinking. Maybe he had good motives, maybe he had good intentions. That's not the point. He erred in, in not seeing the full significance of Christ. Maybe he thought, that's it, I'm done. I have done something wrong. And Jesus comes and touched them gently and said, get up. Do not be afraid. The God of the universe, the one to whom Moses and Elijah have been speaking, is right in front of them in all of his glory. And he says, don't be afraid. And you, of course, if you're a believer, you know why that is. It's because he loved them. He set his affection on them. There was nothing special in, in Peter or James or John, just like there is nothing inherently special about us to be loved by God. But Jesus set his affection on them, and you do not need to fear being destroyed by God if he loves you. Instead, 
in the fullness of his glory. You see the mercy. You see the beauty of grace in this moment. You've seen this in your life when you've come face to face with a God who will rightly judge you in hell. And he says, don't be afraid because they believed. And likewise, you do not need to be afraid because God is for you. He's not against you. He is for you. His mission was to die so that they might live. And they didn't even get that yet, fully. We'll see why in a moment. The Almighty, superior to all, touches them and says, you do not need to be afraid of me because I loved you and you are mine. Astonishing with everything that has just happened for him to say that it can only be mercy, it can only be grace. Verse 8. And when the disciples lifted their heads, so this was comforting enough where they could lift their heads and looked. Verse 8 says, lifting their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Signifying everything we have just mentioned. The law gives way to Christ who fulfills it. The prophecies give way to the ones who they've been speaking about. So Moses doesn't have to stick around. Elijah doesn't have to stick around because Jesus is here. That's what the significance of this is. Jesus is the way to salvation. He is fully God, fully man. He brings about a better and new covenant. And he fulfills all the prophecies and he fulfills the law. So that those who enter into his new covenant by faith will be saved. Fourthly. The work of Christ clarified. Verses 9 through 13. I I like this passage because it still shows that even when confronted with the weight of God's glory, they still don't get it fully. It makes me feel a little bit better. Because you can be saved and still not get everything fully. They saw this. They were undoubtedly in awe. And yet they still didn't fully understand what Jesus came to do. And he's going to clarify the work he came to do. Verses 9 through 13 says this. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. In verse 9, we see Jesus tells them, don't speak of this until after he rises from the dead. That was most likely because people, if they heard about this, would want to crown him king. Or maybe others would want him dead. In any sense, he didn't want the timeline of his ministry to be affected in any way. He says, hang on. Don't say anything yet. And then in verse 10, we see his disciples ask, well, well, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Maybe they were confused for a moment why Elijah left. Elijah's gone now. (laughs) I thought he was supposed to be here so your kingdom can be ushered in. Because maybe they were expecting a different kingdom. Maybe they were expecting an earthly kingdom at that moment. 
Maybe they were expecting freedom from Roman rule or for him to sit on an earthly throne. And Jesus says, here's the reason. Elijah is coming and he will restore all things, but I'm going to tell you Elijah's already come. And they didn't recognize him. Malachi, that prophecy I mentioned to you earlier, I thought it would be helpful to read it. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and strike the land with complete destruction. This is probably what they had in mind. Elijah's going to come. He's going to stick around. And Jesus says... Well, you see, he, didn't, he was here. They didn't recognize him, just as they don't recognize me. You see, prophecies aren't always filled the, fulfilled the way we expect them to be, is what he's saying. Because Elijah coming was John the Baptist, is what it says in verse 13. So he wasn't recognized, and this is what verse 12 shows us. Elijah already came. They did not recognize him. They were expecting the real Elijah. It wasn't the real Elijah. But they did to him whatever they wished. So also, he's going to clarify his work right now. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. What he's telling them is the kingdom that you expect is not happening. But... I'm going to usher in a better one. But it's going to cost me my life. And it's going to cost me suffering. But he wants them to know this is the way. This is the way that has been the case from eternity past. He would come first to suffer and die and inaugurate his kingdom and power in that way. Jesus had to clarify he wasn't going to put a crown on his head. The crown that they wanted, maybe a gold one was going to be a crown of thorns instead. And he would come and he would die. But his kingdom would be inaugurated with the great power of Jesus Christ overcoming sin and death through his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection and his ascension. And in so doing, he clarified his work. He tells them, hey, you have seen me in the full weight of my glory and I'm here to suffer because I love you and because my kingdom is coming and this is how it's going to happen. Not the way you expect it, but the way I have planned it all along. So in a sense, you've spent a little bit of time on this mountain with the disciples tonight. Jesus his glory has been revealed. He is superior. He is significant in every way that you can imagine. He is God in the flesh, the great fulfiller of the law and the new lawgiver, the great fulfiller of all of the prophecies. And yet, he's shown mercy to you. So I want to ask you in our last couple moments together. Is he everything to you? Is he everything? If you took away Christ from your life, would you feel like you're nothing? 
Or would you feel like 80% of you is gone? 50% of you is gone? Or is he everything to you? Do you worship him? Is he the reason you live? We look at passages like this, and and notice it was temporary. He didn't come off that mountain with face shining like the sun. It was brief. It was a brief glimpse. But we ought to get that brief glimpse of his glory. And if we see that glory, then the glory of everything else fades. It really does. Sin looks appalling in light of the glory of Christ. It just does. Remember what he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I want you to be reminded tonight, maybe there are some of you that need to be reminded of this. If you stand in Jesus Christ through faith, God is pleased with you because he is pleased with his son. You might think otherwise in your mind or have other people telling you God is pleased with you. He's come to cover you with his blood and he has done it. Now Jesus' first coming, what his work that he clarified to do was going to be on the cross. It would be a short time on earth. It would be painful, marked with suffering but also with great glory. But he's not done, right? He ascended into heaven, but he's coming back. And this time, he's going to come back with a totally different plan. Not really different, just the ultimate uh, enacting of the plan, I guess. He's coming back in judgment. And if you are on Christ's side, you need not fear him. But if you are not, you better fear him. He's coming back in judgment and he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth and you will stand before this Jesus that stood on the mountain of the transfiguration in the weight of his glory for a temporary moment. You will stand before that for eternity and you will be given a new body to handle it because these bodies can't. That glorious moment on the mountain was meant to give these disciples a small foretaste into God's glory. And it should do the same with us. This is the glorious Christ. This is who you will see forever. So believer, press on with eyes locked on Jesus. And may his glory motivate you to live for him. You're going to be with him forever. You remember when Peter rightfully said... And like we would have said, let's just have some tabernacles and let's stay up here for a while. You won't even have to make the request. You're staying as a permanent residence to gaze upon the glory of Christ forever if you know him. So I thought the best way to conclude is to look forward to that. I have three small passages all in Revelation. Just to give you another glimpse at what awaits you. If you are in Christ, what awaits you with Jesus? Revelation 21, 3 through 6 says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle 
or the dwelling place of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Maybe some of you need to hear this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Revelation 21, 22 through 23 says this, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 22, 3 through 5, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. This is your future. This is the glorious Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us a small glimpse at your glory. And in a sense, we, we see your glory on display whenever we read the scriptures. But in a very real sense, we've seen it on display on the Mount of Transfiguration tonight. Help us to see the significance of it to see the significance of Christ. Jesus is the one of whom all of the Old Testament points to and all of the New Testament points to. It's all about Jesus. Help us to live in light of this glory. When we are tempted to sin, help us to remember the glory of our God. Help us to remember what you have done for us. You have given us hope. You have forgiven us when we are unworthy. You have said, get up, do not be afraid. Because you have loved us. Help us to live in light of this glory. And may we look forward to it. As a small preview of even a movie reminds us that this is just a preview because the reality that awaits us is far greater than we could ever describe. Help us to live in that hope. Help us to honor you. Help us to bow the knee because you are glorious. Help us to see you as such and worship you. We pray this in your name. Amen.